Good morning, everybody. We are in our second of six weeks in the Silver of the Mount. But as I said last time, we're really in uh, week five of nine, if I did my math right, in the life and teaching of Jesus. So again, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount in, in a sense as, a, um, as an example or really indicative of of what Jesus's overall teaching ministry was like. I'm sure it's not like that in every respect, um, but that's kind of how we're looking at it. Last week, we looked at how Jesus, Jesus's kingdom is very unlike this world. Uh, the verse I read this week that reminded me of that was 2 Corinthians 16, 18. Though our outer self is wasting away, or that's chapter four, I think. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's God's kingdom is, is eternal. And many aspects are unseen, unlike this world. And so it's, it's, it's one that's apprehended by faith and faith alone. Uh, this week, we're moving into the second half of chapter five. And it's gonna be a bit of a different study. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of race through the content and I'm actually going to focus on some of the challenges because my intent today isn't so much to teach the passage. Uh, it's, it's more to, we want to have a class exercise. Uh, I want to, well, I've been looking forward to doing this somehow in the last couple of years. I've been looking for a chance to do it. I think this might be it. This is a passage that gives us a challenge theologically to work through and just with the type of people who are dialing in, I'm hoping that this is a good time. I, I, I would fear this doing in a large class, especially with new believers, people who haven't really read much of the Bible, because I wouldn't want them to focus on these, these things that you want to hit more in, as you mature as a Christian. And so um, I'm hoping it, it works well. I, I imagine this working in a class with a lot of interaction. So it's a bit of a risk, but we'll, we'll lean on God's grace and we'll go forward. Um, let me go ahead and pray. Our Father, we, we do rely on you um, always. Uh, even when we feel confident and everything is smooth, we rely on you. So through these times of uncertainty, through an uncertain way of doing a class over computer, um, help us to just fully lean on your spirit and on your grace. Pray that you would teach us and mold us and mature us in ways that you see fit. You know each individual person and family's a particular situation and need. We pray that you would meet those, um, that they would hear the thing that they need this morning, both in Sunday school and uh, in our worship service. For we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully you have your Bibles with you. Um, I'm just going to read the Matthew 5, 17 to 20 right now. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus presents to us six examples. He, he says, but... You have heard this, but I say to you this. And, and we're going to look at those as we go forward. All right. So first, I do want to at least, the, in a normal lesson, this is what I would develop. I would develop these six points. And so I'm just going to kind of give them to you. And we're going to actually cover a few of these in from the teaching in Chapter 6. So if you just, uh, a plain reading, first upon the text, like I told you before, much of the Sermon on the Mount and much of the Bible, sometimes you just need to not let the really challenging bits kind of take away from the, the obvious big picture. Don't lose the forest for the trees, as they say. And that would be true here. There are definitely some challenging um, statements by Jesus that just kind of like, what exactly do you mean? And, and Christians disagree on what they mean. But you, you can get the plain uh, message here um, pretty easily. Just sometimes step back away from those challenging ones and just really, what is Jesus ultimately talking about? First one we would say is God expects full obedience. 
whatever he means by the law that Christians are to fulfill, there are greater, there are lesser commands, and yet he expects us to follow the ball and to teach the ball. God demands perfection. Your righteousness needs to exceed the, the Pharisees. You therefore must be perfect as a heavenly father is perfect. That is not a play on words. That is actually God's expectation. God looks at the heart, not just our actions. Uh, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God cares about the heart. That, that certainly set, sets us apart from much of the world's thinking and other religions. That God sees the heart and he, he cares about the heart as much as your actions. Now, as Romans 7 would put it, we now serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This might not be quite as obvious from this verse, but let me explain. He says there in verse 33, you have heard that it was said you shall not swear falsely, but let what you say simply be yes or no. I think at least one, one issue going on there when Jesus talks about oaths is that sometimes we approach God's commands and, and we look for kind of ways to get around it or to qualify it or mitigate it. Like he can't really mean that. And so I'm going to, I'm going to dance around this command and, you know, it's kind of like lawyer speak or politicians answering questions. Like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give an answer that is technically true, but it, it will deceive the person I'm talking to. And, and Jesus is just trying to cut through all of this. The Jews were using the law in a way that could, they could basically sin. He said, no, you shall not lie. Let it be clear that there should be no games uh, when we when we tell the truth and what we speak. And that would go for all of God's commands. We shouldn't be people who are looking to see how close we can get until it's technically sin. We should be pursuing righteousness and living it out to its fullest. All authority has been given to Jesus. So he, whatever exactly he means, he says, but I say it to you, he is bringing the focus onto himself. Either it's, it's away from the old system, it's away from... Um, mistakes that people are making with the old system. In the end, Jesus is claiming authority like he does when he forgives the paralytic. In John 13, a new commandment I give to you. Only God can give commands. And so whatever it all means, um, one aspect is certainly that Jesus is a story. We're, we're going to find our answers ultimately in what Jesus is teaching. And then God demands radical selflessness. One example, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When we really understand that and we really let it just be uh, clear as day and plain, there's no, there's no formula he's using here. There's no mystery really in what he's saying here. He really means this. If someone offended you to the uttermost, just think of the worst thing they could do to you and they seek your forgiveness, we're to give it. Um, we, we could create scenarios, well, certainly he doesn't mean this, he doesn't mean this. And if that's our first reaction, there's something going on in our heart. And, and if I was preaching a sermon on this, that's the type of thing I would be driving home. Like, what's going on in your heart when you're not just taking Jesus' words at face value? Someone wants you to go two miles, or you go, go a mile, you go two. He really means that. I mean, he really means it. Now, I agree. Kevin said this a couple years ago in this passage that in many ways, this is like um, the Proverbs where there's general wisdom and you can come up with situations where really, you know, doing one thing would violate what Jesus says elsewhere. But there's a whole thrust behind your motives and, 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 and overall intent. And so these are things we could really flesh out. And some of these we will in the coming weeks. So I apologize for those who would want to dwell here. We're, we're going to actually jump ahead. Um, and as I said, don't, don't let the challenging details distract you from the main points. So I'm going to kind of do the opposite today. I'm, I'm going to, at the risk of, of making it more complicated than it needs to be, through, again, my intent is not to get you to a, um, an idea in your own mind exactly what Jesus is saying in some respects. My intent is to make this an exercise. This is a passage, like I could use lots of other passages to do this kind of exercise. And so please unmute and ask questions as we go through. Stop me if you need to. And uh, if I need to follow up in other weeks to, to explain better, I will. All right. I can't draw, so maybe it's good I got to do PowerPoint. So I'm going to talk a little bit about 
um, the, the exercise is going to kind of revolve around balancing, if that's the right word, like a systematic, uh, a, a thematic approach to the scriptures, and then just reading texts. And so these dots represent different texts of scripture. So as you're reading the Bible, again, a, 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 as you mature in the faith, you, you start to see how the things really link together, and you get to know the language and the different genres as we've been talking about. You, you understand some of the mysteries there, but you start to see patterns sometimes. Oh, this passage talks about this, and this talks about this. And so two Christians will look at these set of, say, five texts or whatever, and then one believer will draw the lines this way. In their mind, they're making this logical, all right, this connects this way, this connects, and they create a star. Well, another mature believer looks at the exact same pattern, and they get a pentagon. Um, and they're both plausible, right? There's, it makes sense how these logical connections are made. Um, it, they're both trying to be faithful to the scriptures. They believe that it's God's word. And yet they just kind of come to some different systems. Now, this might be some really overarching system like covenant theology versus dispensationalism, or it might just be some topic like um, eternal judgment or what do I believe about the Sabbath or baptism or, or anything like that. So you, you're kind of taking all the different data points that the scriptures give us, and you're, you're trying to come up with a holistic understanding, knowing that your logic is fallible, but what else are we supposed to do? We, we apply our minds the best, the best we can. Hopefully, in a sense, even though we draw these straight lines in our logic, we, we kind of know the real answer is going to be something like this. <laughs> it's kind of like a Pentagon. But it's, you know, we just know God's mind isn't the same. And there's just going to be tensions there. And um, it's just we're going to do as best we can, knowing that we would never declare our understanding the, the full wisdom of God, right? We're always going to turn people back to the scriptures. We always want to qualify what we teach in a way that says, but please lean on the scriptures and believe what the Spirit is teaching you. Here's another analogy. I hope these make sense. These are how they work in my mind. So there you have some kind of system in the middle, some kind of topic, say. Um, and you're, you take all these different Bible texts. And there's, there's kind of different texts. And we could really jump into hermeneutics, which is really the study of interpretation. And, and go even more detail here. But there's primary text and secondary text. So there's, there's texts that kind of speak to the subject directly. Maybe they're a large passage, or we have a lot of them. Um, and they kind of inform us on this. And then there's other texts, um, these ho hollow dots there, that they could go. They could go one way or another. They're probably going to follow the primary text. Like, I read this passage on its own. Yeah, I, I can see it mean this or this. It depends what the rest of the scripture is saying. And so ultimately, we want to build our system based on the text of Scripture, right? The Bible is our only rule of authority of faith and life. So that's what I'm calling the, the idealistic, that we take the text and we, we now create the system. And maybe it's a little fuzzy, but we do our best. In actuality, in, in, in our lives, I think this is really what happens, right? You, you hear the gospel, you're converted by someone, you start going to their church, or you're raised in a Christian home and you're taught these from a young age. And even over time, wherever you settle in a church, the church has a system, right? Or the people you're around have a system. There's, there's no way around it. We all have systems. And so really, we might be familiar with a few texts in, in the Bible, but for the most part, we're going we're gonna to learn the scriptures through their system. And so our, our own understanding of every text is going to be through the system. And those who you probably have experienced in your own life is, you know, you just read the Bible, well, this doesn't make sense, and you run to someone who seems to know more of the Bible than you, and you kind of take what they say at their word. And, and, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I, I really don't know if there's a way to avoid that. We just have to know in that process, we know that they're not infallible. Eventually, as we read the Bible, uh, we might change our position on that, and that's okay. And so really, it, ultimate maturity is going to get to this. And so these, these two-way arrows. And basically what I mean is, yes, we want to form our system by individual, individual text, but when, when we go to another text, it's not like that text is truly, the way it's drawn here, like it's hanging out there in outer space on its own on an island. It's not like that. We believe in one author. We believe in one overarching message. We believe in a continuity of the scriptures. And so when we say this system in the middle, it's not just man's thoughts there. It's really the rest of Scripture as we understand it.
And so we, we, let, we let these systems, we let our, our overall understanding of the Bible influence an individual text, particularly when it seems like it, you know, it can go two ways. Now, sometimes we get, we get in a real, a real struggle where, man, I am really convinced of the system. This is, I've been reading the Bible a long time. I'm, I have a lot of confidence. But this text just, I feel like I need to do um, acrobatics <laughs> to, to just, to make it fit. And, and there is a time where you just have to accept the fact that, well, I have to readdress my system. This text might force me to go back. And I'm going to have to go back to all these other passages to understand it. And that's what really a lifelong Bible study is doing. What my probably biggest example, I always think of this, is 1 Timothy 2.15 says that women will be saved by a childbearing. Now, I just know. I don't have to know Greek. I don't have to know genres. I don't have to know anything. I know the Bible well enough that there's no way that Paul means there that women's eternal destiny and going to heaven is based on them having children. I just know that can't be what it means. Because I have so much of the Bible, um, the rest of the Bible wouldn't make any sense. So I have to go back to that text and say, what do you mean? And so, oh, the word saved can mean different things than justification. And so and that's the kind of thing that we do. And we don't always get a satisfactory answer. I think we have to realize as Christians, the Bible is a deep book. We will be studying it till the day we die. And then we'll have all knowledge, or all knowledge that we're going to have. And so that's kind of what I want to do. So I'm taking the text of Matthew 5, and I'm taking these six examples of when Jesus says, you've heard, but I say unto you this. And I want to ask the question on the topic of, does the Old Testament law continue? Does it abide into the New Testament? And that's a huge topic. And we're just going to look at, I'm going to, I'm going to, Dumb it down sounds demeaning. <laughs> I'm going to simplify it because I could, I could took it five or six or seven aspects of this. I'm going to just nail it down to two. Again, this is an exercise. Some of you are going to come with a, a confident view of what you already view about, uh, think about this passage. Some of you haven't looked at it in a long time or maybe never, and that's okay. Again, that is not the point. Um, I just want to kind of, I want to look at this interplay between the, the text that we're doing and the system and just I, I kind of want you to just experience that if you don't already I hope you do I hope you aren't one that just discards what the text is saying because I'm so enamored with this system I can't let it go um, and I also don't want you just to stand in isolation in this text and well it says this so it must mean this and I don't care what the rest of scripture says right both of those would be the two extremes we want to avoid and so let me just kind of shotgun at you some of the, the challenges, some of the systems you've probably heard in your life, uh, maybe not recently, and just kind of um, let you know it's a complex issue. That's really it. And then as we enter the text, you know all this is going on in the background. First of all, the word law uh, is the word in the Old Testament, Torah, the Greek word nomos. Sometimes, at least I was taught that the Torah was the actual law of Moses, or it was the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, which is true. The law is used for that. But anytime we in English would use the word law, then Hebrews would say Torah. It's, it's just the word for law. And so sometimes it means, you know, a chunk of scriptures. It's, it's used in a phrase like law and prophets. Sometimes it's the Mosaic covenant itself, the law of Moses. Um, sometimes it's the, the specific commands given from Sinai and not talking about the whole covenant. Sometimes it's just any law, any, any expectation of God's rule and authority uh, in our life um, requiring obedience. And then sometimes it's, it's a rule of life. And I, can, I have examples for all this if anyone wants to see that, and they'll be in the notes. I'll give you some of these right now. All right. So here's, I'll give you three examples where I think maybe at least two understandings are in the same passage. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And so, first of all, we have those under the law. That's the Jews, right? The Jews were the ones that were under the Mosaic Covenant. And so lots of times... Uh, 
the authors, especially Paul, distinguishes people who are under the law and those who aren't under the law, those who are under Moses, not under Moses. So they're covenant people of God and not the covenant people of God. But as Paul makes plain here, to be outside of the Mosaic law is not to be outside of law in general, per se. It's not to be outside of some obligation of obedience to God and to Christ. He's still the God of this world. He's the king of everything, right? And so um, some of that is challenging, but clearly to be outside of law, used in this context, doesn't mean you just can do whatever you want, right? Antinomian, as I say, antinomos, anti-law. Another example is Romans 2. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And so here we have this, the precepts of the law. So we have a Jew, an uncircumcised man, keeping the precepts of the law. Okay, so there's kind of an essence within the law itself there's, there's, that's more important than all, everything else. And then later it says that by doing that, he's actually keeping the law. And yet we know a Jew doesn't keep the Mosaic law. And so, again, all these concepts, is it, are we talking about Moses in this verse? Are we talking about obedience in general? And those are the kind of questions uh, we need to ask as we work through. We can't just see law and assume one thing. Romans 7, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Well, in this case, I find it to be a law. It's kind of like a rule of life, right? He's not talking about Moses there. This is, I just find this to be true. When I desire to do right, evil lies close at hand. And what he says here, certainly for Paul and for any Jew, they didn't really have these category differences, right? The law for them was the law of Moses. And so they didn't have to think, oh man, is this, is this moral law? Is this ceremony? Right? They're like, this is what I'm commanded as a Jew to do in the Old Covenant. Um, but oftentimes what Paul talks about the law, what he contrasts it with is grace. He contrasts it with non-law. And so it's not like he's contrasting Mosaic law to some other law. He's just, he's talking about law in general. Again, don't, don't worry about the specifics here. I just want you to know that the concept of law gets pretty full and complicated as we read through it. And then we've talked about this lots of times. Um, we in our tradition have kind of looked at three types of law that are in the Mosaic law. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't use these terms, and uh, it doesn't necessarily have a, a clean demarcation exactly where these would be. But we basically recognize there are three types of law. Um, the ceremonial, that kind of look at Christ's work on the cross as a priest and a sacrifice. Civil laws, things that would rule the society, restrain evil in general. Uh, things that would define crimes, not just sins, but crimes. And then the moral law reflects the God's character, such as the Ten Commandments. Now, different Christians look at these categories differently. And so working on the far right there, You've got groups who, who accept all the moral, all the civil, and even a lot of the ceremonial. I don't know of anyone that accepts all the ceremonial. But I don't really know where dietary laws fall in these distinctions, these categories. But you have people who today would follow a lot more of the Old Testament than we would. Um, I had friends who follow the different feast days. They, they keep Saturdays the Sabbath because that's what it was and, and so forth. And, and really in the millennial kingdom for dispensationalists, the sacrifices are going to resume. And then you have the middle category there, the theonomists um, that uh, are Presbyterian usually, although I know some Baptist theonomists. And they would, they would not keep the ceremonial law, but they would, they would adopt all or, or a lot of the civil law. And so they wouldn't really see a distinction between civil and moral like we would. They would, they would say America should pick up the book of Moses and should implement the crimes and the punishments uh, involved there. That, those were just laws, and therefore they are always just laws. Um, and then we, uh, Presbyterians, will take the Ten Commandments as moral law. And I don't know if it's fair to say we would limit that to Ten Commandments. For instance, love God and love neighbor are not in the Ten Commandments, right? And yet they are the summation of the law. So we would take a morality from the law that, that reflects God's very character. So therefore it would always be true for all people. And then there's an aspect of civil law. We don't, we don't take the civil law in its 
jot and tittle, we would, um, we would see general equity is the word. We, we would see general wisdom that we would want to apply um, and, and find out that it would be a moral imperative today even to apply some of those principles. And then you actually have other Christians um, who, who don't look at any of the Mosaic law. Their thought is that the old covenant is abrogated. Uh, it's gone. And so therefore we don't turn to Moses to see what we should do. We turn to the New Testament. New Covenant Theology, uh, Dispensatious, and, and many others, many others who haven't thought through their, their system, this would probably be their default, that they're going to turn to the New Testament and probably get a lot of dust in their Old Testament. That's a bygone era. And so you have Christians across the stripes. And so the question is, when Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, you know, depending on where you're at, you, you've got someone else to kind of, you know, aim this at. But realize... So for Presbyterians, we're going to look at people who only turn the New Testament and say, wait a minute, and particularly the, the issue this Sabbath comes up. You, you're, you're turning away God's law. It's, it's in the moral law. What are you doing? You're relaxing a commandment. And yet theonomists would look at us and say, wait a minute, you, you believe in justice and you believe in abiding law, but you're the one that's giving up um, you know, a specific punishment. Pay back 20% interest when someone steals from you or whatever. And so it kind of depends, again, it goes back to your system, exactly how you would apply this, this passage. And so, and here's some overall thorny questions before we hit the six examples. So in verse 17, does inclusion of or the prophets favor scriptural view beyond Sinai? So when Jesus is talking about um, not abolishing the law of the prophets until they're fulfilled, what is he talking? Is he talking about, again, is he talking about the Mosaic law? Is he talking about abolish the Old Testament scriptures, the Pentateuch, uh, the, the moral law? Uh, what is he talking about? Because that will now affect, you know, how, how we view our morality going forward. Verse 18, when will they be fulfilled? What does he mean by fulfilled? Does that mean to complete it? Does that mean to confirm it and establish it? The, which is what the word fulfilled can mean. Um, what does it mean to fill it up, fulfill? If, if he's saying, well, you need to follow these things until the new covenant is established, he's, why does he say, well, I'm going to do this until heaven and earth pass away? I mean, that's the end of time, right? And so sometimes our systems, we think, we think it's going to make sense of this passage. And I think all the systems um, are just challenged in this passage. It's not an easy one. Verse 19, would, would Jesus uh, be using an implied category of moral law? So as I said, a lot of people, I've, a lot of the commentaries I've read on this, assume that Jesus is talking about moral law. Um, and yet that, would, would that category make sense uh, to his original audience? That would be the challenge. Um, could you say that some moral laws are less than others? Um, and then you don't, you certainly, as we look at our six, um, two of them for sure you could say are directly Ten Commandments. A few others you might say derived from the Ten Commandments, but it's just not, it's not crystal clear. And that's why you're going to have disagreements. And that's okay. All right, so, oh, before we get to the six examples. Um, I won't take too much time um, to go through all these, but, but basically you have lots of passages that would seem to indicate on the face of them at first reading that the law definitely continues in the New Testament. We don't overthrow the law, but we uphold the law. The law is holy. The commandments are holy and righteous and good. Paul writing to a Gentile audience in Ephesus says, children, obey your honor, mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, right? So it, he's expecting the Gentiles to follow the Ten Commandments, it appears. First uh, Corinthians 5, another place, you know, the, the whole idea, where, what is your standard? If incest is wrong, by what standard do you have that? Unless, if you can't go back to the law to have that standard, where are you going to get it from? Um, that's not directly in the Ten Commandments either. And then you have other passages. I've noticed I've used all of Paul references here just to say, so we, we can remove that from the table, like the same author to write into the same audiences, seems to speak, almost double speak. We know he's not, but it just seems that way. Um, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so we may serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Look at how Paul is turning the emphasis away from the written code. Galatians 3, he says the law is a guardian until Christ came. We are no longer under a guardian. There's no Jew and Greek, right? So, and Ephesians 2 talks about that, where 
for the Jews and Greeks to be able to come together in one body in the church, he had to abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. First uh, Corinthians nine, I've already read. Um, I'm, I'm not outside the law. I'm under the law of Christ. Um, he, he, it, some people would say, "Well, see, I'm turning to a new law that I'm now going to call the law of Christ." And so then, at the bottom of that table, there, the two sides kind of come as they look at Matthew five. The people who want to uphold the continuation of the law would say, well, it says you have heard. It doesn't say it is written. Therefore, that opens up at least the possibility that what Jesus is contrasting with is not the actual words of Scripture, but a misunderstanding of that Scripture. And so what Jesus is going to do when he says, what I say unto you, is to exegete, to, to explain what the original actually meant, and the people were just confused. Um, and he he certainly, we'll see in our examples, includes some sayings that are not found in the Old Testament. So that bolsters that system, right? That, that viewing of the passage in that way, um, the fact that he's going to quote things that aren't in the Old Testament shows that perhaps that's not what he's trying to contrast with. On the other side, on the right hand of the table, um, the, the very fact that Jesus has claimed authority, but I say it to you. He's not, the, the people there would say, but he's not trying to turn them back and have a Bible study in the Pentateuch, right? He's saying, all eyes on me, I'm the king, listen to me now. Almost as if it doesn't matter what was said before. I want you to listen to me now. And then his examples definitely include direct Old Testament quotes, including Ten Commandments. So if, if the Ten Commandments are the moral law of God, why is Jesus contrasting himself with those actual words of Scripture? So those are the, some of the things that we're going to wrestle with. Uh, before we hit the exact examples, which I hope will hopefully clarify some of the things, I know I've said a lot now, that's all preface, that's all intro to set up our exercise. Um, are there any questions, have I completely lost anybody, that I can maybe get you back on a little bit? Go ahead and unmute and ask. Hey, uh, Keith, uh, Emmanuel. Um, you know, go, going back to verse 43 uh, uh -huh. in Matthew chapter 5, um, well, verse 44, really. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, it, uh, it must have sounded really strange for his uh, Jewish audience because up to, up to that point, really, the way they had uh, their ancestors had come to live in that land was they killed off their enemies, and that was a command, a directive of the Lord. And here, Jesus comes on the scene and he tells them to love his enemies. And their greatest enemy at that time was Rome, who were their conquerors and oppressors. But uh, we begin to see a, a window as to the kingdom which Jesus had come to inaugurate. Uh, he said, You know, my kingdom is not of this world. And he didn't come to uh, reestablish a theocracy, uh, the kingdom of Israel, but he came to inaugurate the gospel kingdom, and that entails loving our enemies. And he did that by his very life, uh, by laying down his life on the cross, by dying for his enemies. Yeah, so let, let's, well, since you brought that up, we will start with that one. Let, let me show you what we're going to do here. So, I want to look at these six categories. So he talks about anger as opposed to murder, lust as opposed to adultery. You used to be able to divorce with a certificate, but now I say no divorce. You used to have to perform oaths to the Lord, um, but I'm saying don't make an oath at all. You were told to um, um, eye for an eye, but I say turn the cheek. And then the passage you just talked about, Emmanuel. So, let's, so it doesn't really matter what order we go through here. But basically, I want you to, this is the tension I'm talking about. So I almost, when I come to a text that I know has challenges, or, or I kind of do this anytime, and I've grown to do this over the years, I, I almost, I don't want to mean the wrong thing, I almost suspend my commitment to my system. I don't, because that system actually helps me interpret the text. But I, maybe I hold it just slightly looser for the time being. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to entertain the, the thought that I'm, my system's wrong or I, it needs tweaks, which is always true, right? We should always entertain that. And so I'm not going to – I'm going to read a text a little bit with a more open mind um, and just accept the fact that I'm going to have some challenges here. 
And I often make lists. So that's what I've done. And sometimes it's not two. Sometimes, like I said, it's three, four, five. There's all these different views out there I've heard about. Um, I'm going to work through this text on my own and just say, yep, I can see why this, this view would say that, this view would say that. Ooh, this really challenges my view or this really confirms it. And so I just want us to walk through these texts uh, in that way. Um, and just beyond, we don't have to worry about what our final commitment is going to be. So Manuel, uh, you volunteered yourself <laughs> or anyone here. So look at uh, verses 43 to 48 uh, in Matthew 5. As I read this, start thinking about, okay, I won't, I'm just going to, I'm going to nail it down to does the, what, what in this text would kind of support the idea that Old Testament law continues today for me as a Christian? Or what in the text shows, hmm, you can't just continue. There's going to be some kind of a change. Maybe it's a slight change. Maybe it's a radical change. Or, or in other words, is Jesus explaining misunderstandings? Or is he actually, you know, saying, eyes on me. Here's what, here's what it is. Here's what it's going to mean going forward, that kind of thing. So think of that as I read these verses. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Emmanuel or anyone, what, what maybe jumps out at you that might support one or the other? And you can draw out one in each column. That's what I always do. Well, one of the things that comes uh, that came to my mind was uh, God making provision for the sojourners and... Uh, the foreigners, even within the uh, old covenant nation of Israel, and there were specific commands. I can't think of the passages right off the top of my head, but uh, that uh, those uh, directives came to my mind. Uh, that I would say would be a continuation of uh, not only loving your Israelite neighbor, but also the sojourner or the foreigner within that community. Great. I, th I think that's a great example. Yeah, and we looked at some of those passages last summer, didn't we, in the social justice, where God is very much um, cares about the sojourner. So he, he, his love was never just about his people. He had a special covenant love for his people, for sure. But even in the Abrahamic covenant, we know that part of the covenant was to be a light to the Gentiles, right? Yeah. Well, another, another example would be Jonah going to Nineveh. I mean, the Assyrians were at that time hated enemies even Jonah hated them so much he was reluctant to go but the Lord uh, had his people that he wanted to bring uh, to saving faith in Nineveh among the Assyrians great and, and you guys don't have the luxury now like I have to look at a bunch of Old Testament texts <laughs> in the law and that's what it would take right to really say that what about what, what are some of the broad questions we could ask on each of these like let's let's first look at is Jesus contrasting with actual words of the Old Testament, um, which, which would then maybe favor that he's contrasting on, on the right side, on the change side, or is he contrasting with things that aren't written there? Any idea? And that's a question for anybody. D did, did the Old Testament ever say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Go ahead if someone's going to talk. Can you repeat the question, Keith? Did the Old Testament say you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy? He says that's what you've heard. You've heard love your enemy and hate. Love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm going to tell you something different. And I'll tell, I'll tell you that it doesn't say that. It clearly says to love your neighbor. Um, there are certainly... Now, later in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, it seems, um, some of those Psalms seem to encourage hating enemy. Um, but it doesn't really say that in the law. In fact, there are probably passages um, that would go against it. Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother. That's clear. 
You shall love your neighbor. Um, Exodus 23 says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down and it's burning, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So actually there's quite a bit of Old Testament law that would seem to, you know, encourage at least being kind. It doesn't say to love your enemies. It doesn't say it as strong as Jesus does, but it doesn't say that you shall hate your enemies. And, and so th this might be just that fact alone might be enough to say, you know what? Um, Jesus is maybe correcting misunderstandings. They've taken, they've taken the lack of a love your enemy commandment to mean I should hate my enemy. They've taken the fact that he, he spends so much time saying, love your neighbor, that it means, well, it must mean I hate my enemy. And so maybe Jesus is simply correcting a false teaching. I think that would be extremely plausible here. Um, and so I'll just jump ahead to some of this, the research I did. I just quoted Leviticus 19 for you. So basically, they are, they are told to hate, they are told to love their neighbor, but they're not told to hate their enemy. Um, and all those pastors down there that at least hints about loving your enemy, how you treat them. Those who would favor maybe changing, they would see that at least the way Jesus phrases it, that he's actually telling you to do the opposite. Whatever he's contrasted against, he's not just modifying it, he's not clarifying, he's actually telling you to do the opposite of that. Um, and then in, in Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, we see the real question there is, who is my neighbor? So in a sense, Jesus, it's not really a question anymore about my neighbor and my enemy because Jesus basically is going to say, everyone's your neighbor. Right? So everyone's your neighbor, so now you can love your neighbor, just like the, the law always told you. So again, I, I'm going to frustrate some of you by not resolving this. I'm just going to kind of let it lie. Um, does anyone have one of these other six examples they want to jump to? Otherwise, I'll, I'll choose. Back to this one. And I know there's a few people online who aren't even part of Spring Meadows. I encourage you to participate as well. If you're on the fence, please unmute and talk. While you're thinking, I'm going to jump to the first one. All right, these first two are probably maybe a little more straightforward. These are the ones we tend to think about um, in this passage. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And so the, part of this, again, is not in the Old Testament. So when Jesus, whatever Jesus is contrasting to, whatever they've heard about being liable to judgment is not an Old Testament quote. And so that might favor the fact that, again, Jesus is not trying to contrast himself with the law itself. Uh, potentially, he's exegeting Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbors as self. I am the Lord. Um, on the other hand, those who see a change in the law would, would jump on the fact that he says, you've heard that it said you shall not murder, um, but I say to you something different. And, and basically they would say, I know you can make the argument that what he meant by not murder included anger, but it never says that. And so that's just one of those leap in logics, that straight line logic that we talked about in those pictures, and you've, you've gone too far. You're, you're assuming too much uh, in the Old Testament. It never said, um, you know, you shall not be angry. And now, now that's a new law. And so they would see, see it as a new law. I'll pause for a second. Any questions there, additions on this one, or if someone wants to jump to a specific other example? Because I just assume we won't get through all of them. All right, how about we jump ahead to the third example where um, in verses 31 and 32, it was also said whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the, Deuteronomy 24 is the big Old Testament text, uh, Old Testament passage that talks about divorce and where this certificate comes from. And so again, we can ask some of our big questions. Is, is Jesus accurately quoting the Old Testament, or is he maybe quoting something else? 
And in this case, I think he is quoting, right? You were, by the Mosaic law, allowed to divorce your wife, but you needed to give her a certificate. And we looked at this when we studied the issue of divorce, I don't know, about a year or two ago. Um, Deuteronomy 24 was dealing, some people would say, well, Moses was dealing with when you, not if. Like, so he wasn't so much as granting permission, but he's dealing with the reality that people are going to divorce, so I'm just going to mitigate its effects. And so that when Jesus is contrasting with that commandment, he's contrasting in the sense that the original intent was never there. And we, there's some indication of that in Matthew 19, where he opens this up even more. He, when he's talking about divorce with the, the disciples, from the beginning it was not so. So divorce was never supposed to be the original intent. Um, now that does get into some complications. Uh, so why did God regulate it? Why didn't he just say don't divorce? If this was always the moral law, why is that not present there in, in, um, in Deuteronomy? And that, that is a challenging question. That, that's the type of question people ask about slavery uh, or how women were treated. Um, now we can say, well, at least they were better than the other nations, but that doesn't, that seems to come up short a little bit, right? Like we, we want a strong example of right is right. And so why wasn't that commanded? And, and there are challenging questions there. Now for people who look at this and say, now clearly, here's an example. I, I can see where you might get anger out of murder. Okay, that's fair enough. But divorce, he's, Jesus is clearly changing the law here. He's saying, you used to be commanded this, and I'm telling you, no, that's no longer the case. Um, Jesus is contrasting himself with the clear teachings of the, of the Old Testament law. Um, now, maybe, maybe you get into your categories here, right? Well, that's not in the Ten Commandments, so it's okay that Jesus is contrasting with a non-Ten Commandment law. Um, but then he's dealing with the issue of adultery, which is tied back to the Ten Commandments. And so you can see how this is not necessarily that as simple as you might think when you first come to this text. And so I, again, in my study, I, I, as I work through this test, I just admit the fact that, man, there's, there's some good evidence on, on all sides here. You know, usually people, any, any, any controversy, that's or any, any disagreement on doctrine, both sides typically have their verses, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't last very long. And so even big heresies, uh, that, you're, that you can lose your salvation, that you're saved by works, not grace. I mean, even big doctrinal differences that would actually divide you from being a Christian or not, people have their verses. And we need to, we need to try to work with these texts uh, with humility and with honesty and just keep working at them and working at them. And I, I would never want you to, to decide your view of the law based on the Sermon on the Mount. I would never want you to come to this one dot, remember my pictures, uh, and, and, and create your whole system on this one thing. No, you're just kind of like, all right, I've got these lists. I'm going to go to another passage now and work out that list. And, and eventually I'm going to do my best. Like, well, most of the scripture seems to point this way, or there must be some nuanced way that I need to understand this. And I'm, you know, I'm going to pray about it, rely on the grace of God. And then certainly I'm going to run to those who are wiser in the Faith. I'm going to run to my brothers and sisters. I'm going to run to the commentaries. Um, I try not to do that too fast at this point in my life because I, I don't want them to persuade me too quickly. While a new believer, I probably would say, you know what? I want you to read the Bible, and I don't want you to stumble. If you get really challenged, go read this commentary. <laughs> you know, and, and so, but as you mature, you want to start reversing the, that balance in a sense. So we are getting late on time. So um, I hope that wasn't too much. I feel like it maybe was. But um, any, any questions or any big comments you just need to get out, um, please raise those now. And if there's any specific questions, please, um, please come, you know, write me, call me, and we can chat about it. Uh, real quickly, uh, Keith, um, when it comes to divorce, um, uh, the believers, we need to under, uh, remember that uh, all Christian marriages uh, reflect Christ's relationship with his church. So we are, ought not to be like the world, and it's uh, not so much, yeah, yeah, di divorce is wrong, but we have to keep in perspective that 
Does Christ divorce his church? Does Christ leave his church or abandon us? And that is not the case. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So if we're going to be a reflection of Christ and his relationship with us, the church, then we ought to live and practice our marriages in, in, in light of that. Amen. That's a great example of running to that, that more general principle. When we talked about divorce, we raised the fact that a lot of Christians see two examples, right? That you've been abandoned or um, adultery. And so even, even if you accept the fact that those are ex, um, reasons that you can get a divorce, um, the question is still, are you going to use that in a way that, aha, uh, you know, like your real heart was, I've been waiting for a reason to get out of this marriage and now I've got my excuse. Well, that clearly is not the heart of God. That's not treating marriage like Christ in the church. So that's a great point, Emmanuel. Again, we don't want to run and look at these commandments. I don't want to say we don't want to be precise because we want to read the text of Scripture for what it is, but you don't want to lose that for us. You want to step back and say, what, what is the heart of God? Obedience is ultimately loving God. And what would please God? And I think that's what some of the verses in the New Testament talk about, living by the Spirit and not by the written code. And that... We have the testimony, the light of the Spirit in our hearts as believers. Um, and, that, and that can certainly guide us in some of these. Anyone else? All right, Emmanuel, would you mind closing us in prayer? Sure. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time in the Word. I thank you for what you have uh, taught us this morning. Uh, I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, uh, begin to understand your word um, and apply your word to our lives. Uh, even now, prepare our hearts as we go into worship, to continue our time in worship. Uh, be with Pastor Tim, uh, grant him an extra measure of your grace uh, as he preaches your word, that uh, your word would be brought to bear on our hearts and minds uh, to better uh, serve, worship you, and to serve one another. In Christ's name, I pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Have a good week, everybody.